Hey, thanks for listening to Everyday Greatness. It's a nice little show brought to you by our major sponsor, ARA Group, an employee-owned company that provides essential services for your facility and infrastructure and is one of Australia's biggest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness isn't rocket science. We're just trying to make you feel proud again of simply being a good, solid human being by speaking to some real people who found that the strength they needed to deal with any challenge in their life had been inside them the whole time. The ARA Group is proud to stand alongside Everyday Greatness, and we all hope that you enjoy the show. My guest today on Everyday Greatness, retired business executive Mary Canning, is like a bowl of indulgent chocolate ice cream that's as healthy as a stick of broccoli. A lot of people seem to think that you can't have delicious, gluttonous, chocolatey, tasty food that's also good for you and healthy. The same is said in business. You can't possibly just be a good, solid human being and successful. But Mary Canning pretty spectacularly bucks that trend. Mary grew up in New Brunswick in Canada, a potato farming community full of authentic people who called a spade a spade. They never tried to be somebody they weren't. And Mary brought those traits of authenticity to her corporate life. When she told a company managing director in her early business life that she wanted to tell her team about her car, a car crash her mother had been in, he told her, people don't need to see that side of you. Mary disagreed. Mary Canning takes great pride in figuratively stripping bare and allowing teams to see her human side. Mary Canning is the perfect example of an authentic leader. Far from being a pushover though, being authentic helped Mary start a successful company in Canada before moving to Australia where she became a business director at BD and Medtronic multinational medical companies. Mary's had a seat at the table in plenty of boardroom conversations, but she's made sure she's spoken candidly and had her voice heard. Beyond being authentic just to enhance her corporate reputation though, Mary is just a flat out nice person. While she was a corporate powerhouse, she used to go for morning walks with a staff member just to stay fit and have a chat. Mary mentors young men and women who often ask her the question whether they can be a nice person and get ahead in business. And Mary answers that question with her actions. One of the proudest things she can say about herself is that her son, Jamie, comes to her for advice on how to run his own business as a gym owner. It gives me all the pleasure in the world to welcome one of the most authentic people on the face of the earth to everyday greatness. Mary Canning, welcome. Thank you so much, Barnaby. Absolute pleasure to be here. So growing up in a community, a potato farming community in Canada, you must have seen some very authentic people who just called a spade a spade. Who were some of the more memorable characters around town? Well, you're right, Barnaby. You know, I growing up in a, in a small country town um, and in a time where there were small family businesses, um, you knew a lot of people in the town or knew of um, a lot of people. 
you were surrounded by authenticity. Life in a small town was was really based on this. Um, probably the the person I need to call out that um, was the most authentic in my life was my father. He worked for the Department of Transportation and often had to call a spade a spade. I recollect the time I was home from university visiting and uh, it was in the spring and it was um, a, a time and here in Australia, we're very familiar with flooding. It was a time when, when there was massive floods in, in our hometown and outside of our hometown. Um, we had a really heavy snowfall winter and a quick spring, a warm spring, which caused massive flooding just because of the snow melting. And as well um, on the river, St. John River, that went past um, our town and, and the neighboring town, um, had lots of ice. And uh, with the ice floods, um, it was like a bulldozer, so it would knock, knock things down in their path. And I recall, um, you know, dad was out and he was, you know, with row closures and really busy evacuating people as well. And uh, there was a bridge in the neighboring town. Uh, it was a train bridge. Um, and next to that train bridge was an automobile bridge. And the train bridge was lower than the autom automobile bridge. And um, dad said it was going to go it, it, because of the ice coming down the river. It was going to go. And he came home, get cleaned up. He had been working outrageous hours during this time. And he got a phone call. I'll never forget it. He got a phone call from a colleague and they said they were going to put a train on the bridge to stabilize it so that it wouldn't go down. And I can remember hearing my father, you know, he was quite passionate. He said, the bridge is going to go. And if the train is on it, the train is going to go as well. He hung up the phone, jumped in his car, went to the neighboring town where the bridge was and had some really robust discussions with the people that made the decision to put the train on, on the bridge. Um, he lost that argument and uh, sure enough, the bridge went and the train went with it. Um, my dad was very authentic. He, you know, wasn't an educated man, but he knew his stuff. He knew um, what had to be done. He was um, always in, in, in the mind of, of people's safety because of, you know, his role with the roads. And, um, you know, he was he was deemed a, a hard man and i think it's because of his candidness and uh, again calling a spade a spade beautiful so growing up in a potato farming community in canada what did that teach you about earning an honest dollar yeah um the the way it was in our hometown we um went to school three weeks earlier than probably the rest of canada um, and that was to um, take three weeks off during the potato harvest. And uh, most of the community would help out the potato farmers um, by picking potatoes. That was a time when, you know, they didn't have harvesters. It was a digger that would go down, um, bring the potatoes to the surface, and then the farmers would have a crew of potato pickers. 
And um, uh, my mother and my three sisters um, would be picking potatoes during this time. My dad would take three weeks off. Um, that was his holiday, and he would work on the farm. My grandfather um, was uh, working for a potato farmer all his life. And I can remember being that young in the potato field, um, the old um, tomato baskets, they would hold about 24 um, tomatoes. That's what I had. I had as a kid, I would fill that up um, with potatoes and then empty it in a barrel. And the the rule in our family was when you were 10 years old, um, whatever money you would make picking potatoes, you could keep. Um, but the um, uh, criteria was you had to pay for your school clothes. <laughs> so, um, you know, had a little bit on the side type of thing. But um, and, you know, today, obviously, uh, that would be considered child labor. But I just learned so much. And I know that my family just learned so much during that time about the value of a dollar that, um, you know, it's not given to you on a silver platter. Um, you worked for it, you worked hard for it, and you were proud of what you did. And um, uh, it was a great experience. I, I, I wish I would have been able to give that experience to my son. <laughs> that is a fair income, honest dollar. So what, uh, what business principles did you bring across to the corporate world when you jumped into your job at Vital Air in Canada? Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess based on, on that um, experience growing up, certainly um, give 100% of yourself when you um, have a job, do it, and, um, you know, you'll, you'll benefit from that. Um, when I joined Vital Air, um, I was a respiratory therapist at the time working at the, uh, a, a hospital in, in Halifax, and um, uh Vital Air was was across Canada, with the exception of the east east coast. And um, Vital Air had had um, secured a contract to deliver home oxygen, so it was a respiratory home care company. Um, so with this contract, they they were looking for a respiratory therapist um, that was interested in doing some moonlighting and you know get a little bit of extra cash and yeah. with the shift work at the hospital um, it was pretty easy for me to raise my hand and um, I was working mostly night shifts at the hospital at the time so I could deliver these uh, you know small oxygen cylinders across um, the city and the outlying um, country areas to people that required home oxygen yeah. And um, then um, I was made aware that they were interested in opening up an office in Halifax. Um, So, you know, that was at the time that a respiratory therapist could get a job pretty easily. You know, um, I've done this quite often in my life with opportunities presented to me that, um, you know, give it a year and see how you go. So I raised my hand and... um, uh, they, um, I guess one of the, the biggest questions was, you know, why would you hire me? I don't have any experience in business. And yeah. this is, you know, starting up a new office and a new business. And my manager at the time said, just do what you do best. You know, you're a respiratory therapist, you're focused on the patient, um, you know what has to be done. Just do that. So on my first day, I was handed 
a set of car keys to a company van. <laughs> and he said, go out and talk to people and understand what is happening today and um, what their expectations are for a, a good, comprehensive respiratory home care package. And that's exactly what I did. Just yeah. went out and met with um, respirologists, palliative care units, um, respiratory therapy departments, and uh, learned a lot, talked a lot, and listened a lot. Um, yeah, so it was a great experience and um, uh, started up um, the business, hired staff, and um, was very proud of what we accomplished uh, within a relatively short time. Um, in Halifax. As you should be. So you are very much ahead of, or you were very much ahead of your time, Mary. Authenticity and authentic leadership in business today is a really desirable trait. Did you ever sit down when you first got into the business world and decide you wanted to be authentic or is that just how you rolled every day since you were a little girl? I was um, privileged to have an authentic manager when I when I started. He was um, a real down to earth Newfoundlander, actually, yeah. and um, uh, you know he taught me so much. He taught me um, about having candid, open um, conversations, not only with customers but with the team, um, with your staff, with management. Um, so I, I felt really privileged to be um, exposed to that in the, in the business world. Um, obviously, you know, reflecting back on my father and being raised in that type of environment, um, you know, I, I feel that, that that level of authenticity, um, I was exposed to that for so many years. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I built a very close team um, when I opened that office in in, um, uh, in Halifax. And we were close in terms of everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody's family. We spent time together. So it was really easy, actually, for me to be authentic. Everybody um, uh, that I was surrounded by, I felt were authentic. Yep. So when you suggested to your managing director in the story I told in the introduction that you'd like to share a story about a car crash your mother was in, do you know why he was so discouraging of you sharing that story with your colleagues? Well, I mean, I can only only assume because I, I didn't have that conversation with him after um, he made the comment. You know, I was part of the leadership team. We had about 400 employees here in, in Australia um, that I was, you know, part of the leadership team on. And, you know, he may, may have been a bit old school. And it was, you know, when, when I was sharing the story, I, I got very emotional. Um, you know, I got choked up, um, tears, etc. cetera. Um, and I think he felt that that was a sign of vulnerability. And I, I felt very comfortable and, and confident in sharing that story because to me it sent a very um, uh, relevant message to those 400 employees that everything that we do every day has, has something to do and impact somebody's life, whether it's, you know, a mother, a father, a sister, brother, child, etc. 
um, what we do in the healthcare industry, um, making sure that that product comes in and is available um, uh, to, you know, for clinicians to use on patients, that it, it's a very important thing. And um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You carry on. And and I, I felt very comfortable in sharing that, but I truly believe he he felt that it was a, a sign of vulnerability, especially from a, a leader within the organization. Um, but I must say, after I, I delivered that that story, which was at you know the company conference um, to the audience of 400 employees, the feedback I, I received after was amazing. And um, it was feedback that, you know, we, we've seen a true side of you, Mary, and you weren't afraid of, of sharing a, a hard story with the rest of the organization. It's very good to hear that vulnerability was a good thing. It's odd that it seems like it was a, a hindrance from your managing mm. director. Yeah. When you first got a seat at the table in boardroom discussions in the corporate world, did you feel like you weren't aggressive enough to have your voice heard? Well, when, you know, I got, you know, moved to a director role, um, I was inexperienced and I knew it. Um, You know, initially I took the position of listening, learning, understanding the audience. And, um, you know, I must admit I was not very vocal initially. Um, once I gained a level of confidence um, that I knew my business um, and and comfortable within, um, you know, within the leadership team, I I didn't hesitate to to vocalize. But yeah. th- there were, there's there's th- something that uh, I guess I reflect on um, or I reflected on when I was a respiratory therapist. You know, one day you're a student. Um, and then the next day you're a registered respiratory therapist, right? Um, the letters after your name are not enough. You know, I could walk into the ICU and just because I was a registered respiratory therapist, um, didn't mean a lot in terms of, you know, the other people, the intensivists and the nurses in the ICU. I had to prove myself. That's just part of life. That is just um, what happens. And I believe it's the same thing in the business world. When you're sitting around the boardroom table as a new director or a new executive leader in in the organization, you do have to prove yourself. I think that's just part of life. And, um, you know, learning, listening, understanding, um, understanding what's important to the audience. uh, It's, 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 you, you've got to put that package together. And once I got that package together, I felt comfortable. Um, I, I did not have a problem, um, you know, talking and uh, bringing value to the conversation. And plenty of value you bought by all accounts. So when you started your life out in corporate boardrooms, diversity wasn't as flourishing as it is today in boardroom makeup. Did you ever doubt yourself as a woman in the corporate world and wonder whether you could compete with these ruthless, aggressive, mostly white, powerful men? Um, you know, I, I, I never doubted my abilities and the value that I, I could bring. 
um, you know, uh, and whether we define it as aggression or, or passion, um, I'd like to say it's, it's passionate because I've, I've been involved in many of those passionate (laughs) discussions, um, sitting around a boardroom table. Um, but when I, you know, when I first got into a, a leadership role, um, I, I might admit that I was quite naive. Um, you know, I, because I guess my experience working in a potato field, starting up an office, um, I, I didn't see that male female, uh, differentiation that much, um, until one particular, um, time. I'll just share a story if I may. Um, when I was, uh, at Vital Air, um, we had grown enough that, um, I needed to build a, a, a larger office. I didn't, but manage and project manage the building of another office and two other divisions within the, uh, Air Liquide group, um, were going to join the healthcare team, um, in that office. And there were two managers, uh, they were, um, probably in their early fifties, they were male. They had been with the organization um, for a very long time. Yeah. So when I was planning out the the office, and I, I'm, I'm laughing about it now because I, it, it's how naive I was. Um, you know, planning out the offices and whatnot. Um, you know, nice new office, and consciously because of their tenure and their. Um, uh, time with the organization, I felt it was important for me to, to, you know, plan out bigger offices for them than me. Um, just thought that was the right thing to do and working yep. with the space that I had. So, so I, I made two decent sized offices for them and then mine, but mine was in the corner <laughs> in between their two big offices. <laughs> And I didn't understand, you know, what the corner office was. <laughs> and um, anyway, when when I um, opened up the office and, and they came in, it was the first time that they had seen it. Oh, my goodness, you should have seen their faces. <laughs> and, and the talk, you know, uh, uh, around, I had heard from other people within the staff that they were a little upset. And it was simply because of the corner office. And it's like, seriously, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I made two big offices for them. Mm-hmm. And prob- probably being a young female as well, um, that, was, that was the first time that I, I got a taste of the male-female <laughs> young, older, um, uh, references, so to speak. If you've got the power to make those decisions, put yourself in the corner office. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So when you were in boardroom discussions, did you have, did you have any strategies to make yourself heard if you were being talked over and people were being too passionate around you? Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in a boardroom when, when, uh, a, a serious discussion is happening and there's a lot of passion in the room. You know, it is so common to be talked over. Um, I found that you have to be patient. You have to look for a time where, you know, there's a lull in the conversation and you need to have the confidence and the comfort to jump in. Um, I've raised my hand, you know, if I wasn't being heard or I felt I wasn't being heard, your body position has, you know, everything to do with it as well. If you're just sitting back and, 
you know, in enjoying the conversation, um, it, you know, you've got to, as they say, lean in and uh, be part of that conversation. Yeah. And once again, you, you've, you've got to be confident and comfortable um, to speak up. You, you know, you have something to say, you have to, you have to feel comfortable and don't leave until you're heard. Um, there's many meetings where, you know, they've gone over time and, you know, it was lengthy meetings, just ensuring that I had a voice and when I had something to say, I said it Mm. and as well, scaling the room for other individuals that didn't get to say anything and making sure that they did. Um, it's, it's biggest thing is being patient. Yep. So when you found yourself in a position in the corporate world where you had the power to hire and fire, did you feel the responsibility to hire more women to get a more equal representation of sexes? I must admit, I have never consciously hired based on gender. Um, You know, in today's world, most businesses report Um, on diversity. They have diversity ratings, you know, the number of males to females, especially within management. And I think this has done a great thing. You know, it's raised awareness of the inequality of gender um, within the workforce. And again, I'll reference, especially in management or, you know, executive positions. Um, I must admit in the first 10 years, I, I was either the sole or minority female um within management teams and um i'm i'm slightly actually not even slightly probably very concerned um about managers hiring based on gender or race i feel that it, it that that could potentially result in not hiring the most appropriate person. Um, as I said, I've, I've never consciously hired based on gender. I've hired based on um, qualifications and the best um, cultural fit. Um, my son came to me um, when he was managing one of um, the gyms within the, the chain that he manages. Yeah. And um, he made a comment to me and it it disturbed me. Um, But when he went for the position, he he raised a concern that he was a white female or sorry, a white male. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And um, I asked him, I said, why are you concerned? He said, because I'm an I'm the minority from a hiring perspective. Um, I stand less of a chance being a white male. And, and that's disturbing to me. Um, it really lends itself to not hiring the most appropriate people. Yeah. And um, when you hire an inappropriate person, it's not fair to them and it's not fair to the rest of the employees or the organization. Very true, very true. So we've come a long way in the world in terms of diversity and inclusion in workplaces but are we at the end? Are we good enough or do we still have a ways to go? Yeah, I, th- I think we have a ways to go. Um, I define diversity and inclusion as experience and collaboration, not necessarily, you know, gender. Um, managers, I feel, have a tendency to um, make decisions in, in isolation and 
not necessarily embracing the opportunity of tapping into the vast amount of experience that that exists within um, the employees, no matter what department, um, uh, that are around them um, to really get the opinion and um, uh, to solve the problem um, from the rest of the team. Uh, you know, the inclusion, the ownership, the empowerment uh, really drives in employees. Um, and I, I just find that that managers have a tendency not to 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 reach out. Uh, I hope organizations are looking not only at the diversity rating of male um to female um, ratios, yeah. but instead embrace the opportunity of, of the diversity uh, within their team, which is based on the experience. Yeah, good point. So let me ask you about the young men and women you mentor in business. Do you think young people in business today find any merit in being authentic and vulnerable in business? Or do they struggle with the concept and want results and positions and pay rises right now? I, I think, you know, the people that I mentor, they wish for authenticity. Um, and when they see it, they truly appreciate it because they've called it out a number of times. And, you know, some of the mentoring sessions that, that I've had with them. I understand the pressure that makes people avoid authenticity, you know, the what you see is what you get, calling a spade a spade, being candid. Um, sometimes that's not popular. It's not a popular approach because you're yeah. going against what somebody, you know, a decision they've made or, or whatnot. So it's it's challenging in that sense. Um, it takes confidence and comfort um, to be authentic. Again, you know, my, my father was considered a hard man. Um, simply because he called a spade a spade and was authentic. So, um, you know, I, I think people want it. They enjoy seeing it. But I think that they struggle with it because it's not always, you know, the most popular avenue to take. Yeah. Let me ask you one final question, Mary. Today's boardrooms would look a lot different to the ones you started out in in business with their diversity and inclusion and a more equal representation of sexes, races, religion. How proud are you that you played a hand in helping make the, today's boardrooms more diverse and help lesser voices get a seat at the table in those discussions? Yeah, look, Barnaby, I'm, I'm very proud. You know, I, I've seen many of the people that I've managed in senior positions today. Um, it puts a smile on my face when I get a call from a past employee to provide a reference for, you know, an advancement role that they're going for. Um, I, I'm, I'm very proud on how times have changed and, um, yeah, I'd like to think that that I've um, played a role in in that change over the years that I've I've been with a number of companies. Uh, you know, those companies themselves look a, a bit different than than they did years ago. Yeah. And what practical things have you done to help bring more diversity and inclusion to the business world in Australia? Um, you know, I, I think mentoring, um, uh, people within an organization, 
most organizations have formal mentoring programs yep. now, which I, I think is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And um, one of the things that I felt very passionate about in terms of mentoring individuals is that it's it's not just assigning you know, a senior leader to be your mentor. Um, there has to be a relationship there. There has to be some type of connection between the, the two individuals because you do have to strip there um, when you're having mentoring conversations. And, um, you know, I found myself, you know, they say that part of your role as a manager is coaching. Um, yes, there's there's the coaching side of it, um, but there's the mentoring side, which I, I find is probably more important that you're there to share your experiences um, and you don't have to be in the same department as as somebody you're mentoring because, you know, mentoring is, is based on situations and, again, experience. And, um, again, puts a smile on my face when, um, you know, I hear about those individuals that I mentored or, you know, my employees um, uh, taking on additional roles or responsibilities within organizations. Well, Mary Canning, the highest corporate position I ever got to in the business world was as the hospital claims team coordinator at HBA Health Insurance. So I take my hat off to you in your roles in corporate boardroom discussions, but I have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds very impressive. <laughs> but above all of that, above all of your corporate representation and achievements, you're a really nice human being. So thank you so much for joining us on Everyday Greatness. Thank you, Barnaby. It's been an absolute pr- pleasure. Thank you, Mary. And thank you all for listening. Thank you to the ARA Group for being our major sponsor for the fifth year in a row. Thank you to Look Studio Australia for recording this podcast. And I hope that when you all put your devices down in a little while, you lift your head up, push your shoulders back and walk down the street proud of being an everyday Joe or Joanne bag of donuts. I hope you can join us next week where my co-host, Order of Australian medalist Scott Gibbons and I will be talking to the CEO of the Antarctic Science Foundation, former elite cyclist and reborn skateboard enthusiast Andrew J. Kelly. We'll talk about how being a modern corporate leader is a trick of balancing being a good human being with the demands of business success and the huge importance of the small goodness in life. I hope you can join us for that one. But in the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about this show, go to our website, everydaygreatness.com.au or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube or LinkedIn. Thank you again for listening today.